Hi, I'm Mark Rodman. Coming up, we'll get the latest on North Carolina's Senate race. The EPA announces a new environmental justice office in North Carolina, and teen suicides continue to surge. Next. Major funding for Front Row with Mark Rodderman is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Nicholas B. and Lucy Mayo Body Foundation, A.E. Finley Foundation, N.C. Realtors, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Donna King with Carolina Journal, political analyst Joe Stewart, Democratic State Senator Sarah Crawford, and Travis Fain with WRAL. Joe, why don't we begin with the latest on North Carolina's Senate race? Yes, a poll came out this week, the John Locke Foundation Civitas Poll, a survey of North Carolinians looking at a number of issues, including the U.S. Senate race. Interestingly enough, it shows it more or less to be a dead heat between Ted Budd and Jerry Beasley. Uh, interestingly enough, Budd, though, no longer holds the lead among unaffiliated voters. He's gone from a plus six to a negative eight, which is probably some indication of the overall political landscape of the state. And we see in the generic ballot in this poll, Relatively speaking, Republicans doing slightly better than Democrats when voters are asked the question, irrespective of the candidate, who do you plan to vote for, the Democrat or the Republican? And this is really reflective of another poll that came out this week, the Washington Times ABC News poll that showed. Washington Post. No, I'm sorry, Washington sorry. Post uh, ABC poll showed similarly the generic ballot uh, with Democrats with a slight advantage. Interestingly enough, this is the thing I think is most telling in this election cycle. When asked the question, how motivated are you to turn out and vote in this election, Democrats report three. Three and four of them highly motivated, but eight and ten Republicans are highly motivated. And that may be the key issue as we head into the final weeks of this election. Which of the two parties can keep their voters most enthusiastic and excited about actually turning out? Now, the numbers, the generic ballot and other factors earlier in the election cycle showed a pretty significant favor uh, toward the Republicans, uh, leading us all to believe it was going to be a big red wave. I think at this point, maybe because of the issue of Roe versus Wade being overturned, Democrats have become slightly more engaged. But another factor in the Washington Post, ABC News Times, right. uh, ABC uh, News poll is that Democrats are not doing as well among non-white voters as they did in the last midterm election in 2018. Travis, what are the issues driving this election? I think abortion is a big issue driving the election, but of course the economy is probably number one. I'd, I'd put them at kind of 1-1-A. One, one, uh, one of those two polls, I remember Dobbs ruling, that's the abortion ruling, 64% opposed it, but 84% called the economy the top issue in their vote for Congress. So the, kind of the, the interplay between those two issues and how the economy goes, I think will really impact congressional elections the most going forward. But state legislative races, at least I hope, people are putting some calculus into this because abortion policy will be made likely at the state well, level. Well, what struck me, Donna, was is that 34 out of the 55 uh, competitive districts across America in, uh, running for Congress, Republicans have an edge. Right. That's what the Washington Post poll did turn out. And when we're looking here, we're talking about the generic ballot. Uh, you know, Ted Budd isn't quite performing as highly as that generic ballot if he's still even uh, with Sherry Beasley. But in the end, if we're talking about issues, this is going to be really about messaging, whether 
whether the Republicans can convince, uh, you know, their base and the electric, particularly those unaffiliated, uh, that the economy and inflation is a big deal. Because to 57 percent of the people who answered in North Carolina, they say we're headed, 57 percent think we're headed to a 1930s, you know, depression type of recession. And that's something that's really, really difficult to, to uh, make that case. They have to do it if they're going to get them to the polls. Uh, now, of course, Democrats have really landed on a key word that I think we're seeing reflected in this in these polls, and that's extremists. You hear them just pounding, 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 calling Republicans extremists. And that, that word must have polled really well, because I think we're seeing it used effectively in this campaign. But in the end, 56% of people say it's difficult to buy food. 66% say we're headed in the wrong direction. Well, that's a good question, Sarah. Are Biden's economic policies on the ballot this cycle? Um, you know, I, I certainly think that uh, we, we, uh, we can't get away from the fact that Biden is on the ballot this cycle. But look... This is not news that Biden... But this is Biden's economy, though, isn't it? It's his policies? Um, you know, I think these are policies that, that uh, he is trying to get us get us out of. Um, it's, it's not news that Biden has been an anchor on Democrats all year long. There's not a Democrat running in the state or really across the country that doesn't know that. Um, so Democrats are running on local issues, and they're trying to tie Republicans to, to this extremist agenda. Uh, and, you know, they, they know the assignment. Republican messaging is on inflation and... and and crime, Democrats' messaging is on abortion. They understand the assignment. Most elections, though, Joe, they come down to the economy, don't they? Kitchen table issues. Well, I always like to say voters are always focused on economic issues unless they're not. <laughs> and sometimes there's an international crisis, and Great that diverts quote. people's attentions. And sometimes it's about some other issue that pops up. Four years ago, the last midterm, it was the Brett Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh hearings, and that suddenly galvanized right. support among base Republican voters and muted what would otherwise have been a blue wave election. But I think the thing that's most telling now is voter interest in actually turning out is really high, and we're likely to see at least 55 percent, if not 60 percent, of registered voters in the state vote in a midterm election. Okay, we need to change gears. The EPA made a major announcement in North Carolina this week. Tell us about it, Travis. Yeah, that's right. They announced a new multi-billion dollar effort on environmental justice. Michael Regan, the head of the EPA, used to work in Governor Cooper's administration, came down for the announcement. Now, what is environmental justice? Well, it's the opposite, uh, quite frankly, of environmental racism. It's the recognition that race and poverty play and have played a role in where we put things, where landfills go, where pollution is dumped, where chemical plants are built. And Regan picked Warren County because in the early 1980s, North Carolina discovered that a bunch of people had been dumping oil laced with PCBs, which had already been banned by the federal government, uh, along 210 miles of roadway in North Carolina. This stuff can cause cancer. And so they scooped up the soil and they decided, well, we're going to deposit this in Warren County. And there were protests. The UNC Library says this is the first time in U.S. history that people were arrested. 1982, the protests. 1982. Something like 500 people arrested. UNC Library says it's the first time anybody was arrested for protesting pollution. Warren County was 64% black at the time. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. A 20 I think that was standard practice. A 2017 study found black Americans nearly four times as likely to die from exposure to pollution than white Americans. So what Re Re Regan came down and announced in Warren County, what they're doing is they're combining several existing offices at the EPA into one office focused on environmental justice. It's going to have 200 employees. And this is the EPA saying that this is now going to be part of their decision-making process, that environmental justice right. is elevated as an issue. There are also going to be grants, but here's a quote from Regan. When you look at the way EPA does this risk analysis to determine the level of stringency of protecting communities, we will take into account communities and how they have been impacted over time. I think that's bigger than the money. Sarah, jump in here. 
Yeah, this is a really big deal. It's a really big deal for the country. It's a really big deal for North Carolina, especially having been announced here. Um, you know, this this continues kind of the long record that North Carolina has had on environmental justice going back 40 years ago. Uh, we have the green governor in our state. He has put out uh, several executive orders specifically focused on environment and environmental justice and put just a wonderful person, Michael Regan, the first African-American at the top of DEQ underscored by the Biden's administration picking of him to run the EPA. Um, this, this is a huge issue for our country. 70%, 70% of the most polluted sites in our country are within a one-mile radius of federally assisted housing, which we know disproportionately has black and brown residents at a higher rate. So th this is a big deal that our country is focusing on. Great it. comments. Donna? So uh, one thing I think the EPA, you know, being in Research Triangle Park has contaminated buildings all over this region. And that's something I'd like to see them focus on as well. Um, and the other is that $3 billion out of the Inflation Reduction Act seems a bit, uh, a bit elitist because what we're really talking about is cheap land and poor people, regardless of, of their color. Those people can't feed their kids right now. Their children are getting an abysmal education. Their service industry jobs are becoming automated. They're becoming more and more dependent on the government. And to spend three billion dollars on it right now when they can put gas in their cars, then EPA needs to get in line behind those people. Joe, put this in context. Wrap it up in about 40 seconds, my friend. Yeah, I think this is an issue for which there are strong feelings on both sides. And, and quite frankly, social economics has always been a difficult concept within the way capitalism works. I mean, parts of the country where things are not as good economically have a tendency to see less investment. They have a tendency to see less infrastructure. We need to have a balanced approach. We need to make sure we don't go too far in the opposite direction, discourage the kind of economic activity that would create jobs for people in socioeconomically depressed areas. But on the other hand, we do need to preserve and protect people's physical well-being. If there is someone doing the wrong thing relative to the environment, it is the right thing to try to stop that. Okay, Don, I want to turn to you. Absolutely. I want to talk about teen suicides post-pandemic. They're surging. Yes. I mean, the numbers really are staggering. The Department, North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services has been working on this. Uh, right now, uh, suicide is the second leading cause of death in North Carolinians, zero to 18 years old. It's the third leading cause, folks 18 to 34. This is a huge, huge problem in North Carolina and really across the country. Uh, it surged during the pandemic. Uh, there are 11,000 emergency room visits every year by attempted suicide and, you know, 3,000 hospitalizations. This is a really big problem that I really could call my underreported because I feel like I'm not seeing as much focus as it really needs to be. DHHS is, is setting up an office to really study this, figure out how to intervene, how to provide services and training down at the community level to head this off. But there are more studies coming out, too, that show that the relationship between a student and a parent has a huge impact in how they perceive themselves, how they perceive their future opportunities. So it really needs to be at every level that we're intervening. But one of the good things, one of the really, um, you know, positive movements that's happening in this. UNC Chapel Hill was just uh, given a gift by a family who lost two children to suicide, $25 million to set up an institute to study it. What's happening down to the General Assembly to address this, uh, Sarah? Uh, quite frankly, not enough is happening to address this. You know, I, I appreciate DHHS really, really taking a look at this issue. I agree that we, we need to be doing everything we can, putting all the tools in our toolbox to address this issue. And it's not just going to be one thing. And that's what the department has done. 
They, they have uh, kind of a seven-step strategy uh, to tackle this. But, um, you know, we had some opportunities in the last legislative session uh, to really start to make a dent, starting with our schools. Uh, we could fund school nurses and social workers. We're not doing that. Uh, we have a, an abysmal problem across the country and in our state. We should have one school nurse in every single uh, school across the state. And we have, uh, we have uh, schools that, quite frankly, don't have any nurses. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention Medicaid expansion. Um, we know that when people have better access to health care, they're more likely to get what they need. And studies have shown that in states that have expanded Medicaid, the, uh, the rate of suicides is actually down. Travis. This topic makes me think of two words, loneliness and guns. Look for the lonely people in the world. Reach out to them. It doesn't take much. You just you never know how much just a text, just a, I'm thinking about you, opening yourself up a little bit, even if you think it's kind of lame. It, it can make a difference in people's lives. Second is guns. There, there are more guns than people in this country. Uh, DHHS says there are 1,436 suicides in North Carolina in 2020. 61% involved a firearm. Firearm sales have gone up. Not everyone has learned how to care for their firearm, how to store it safely. 85% of the people who use a firearm in a suicide attempt die. Joe. One of the things that Senator Crawford alludes to that I think is valuable for us to know is the provision of services and mental health services. One of the things we saw come about as a result of COVID is telehealth. And actually it surged during the worst days of the pandemic and sort of dropped back. But many healthcare providers and insurers are now trying to figure out how to make telehealth more readily available. In terms of the provision of mental health services, for some folks who feel a little stigmatized, perhaps, by seeking out counseling, this provides a relative level of anonymity to seek the benefit of a counseling conversation. And I think it's important to know we've gone through a very difficult time in our country's history. A With lot of people, shutdowns. yes, a lot of people feeling very frustrated. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services now recommends screening for anxiety among all people under the age of 65 when they're having their annual physical health checkups. So I think there is some good news in this. If we can make the provision of services more widely available, people can get the counseling and support that they need perhaps to prevent the most serious re repercussion from depression and that's suicide. Donna, sure. wrap this up in about 40 yeah, absolutely. seconds. absolutely. I think thoughts. it is impossible to uh, understate the impact of shutdowns and closing businesses, closing schools on the mental health of every age of North Carolinian, but particularly teenagers. Uh, you know, the idea that, you know, we came through this unscathed in terms of their academic performance, their mental health, we're going to be suffering for years to come. It has to be something we're talking about. Okay, I want to talk to Sarah about the uh, child welfare crisis that's been in the news lately. Yeah, this is a crisis that, um, you know, unfortunately, it's not really new. Um, but there was a, a couple of stories, there were a couple of stories this week uh, that with DHS, HS warning that the state could be sued really at any time uh, for the handling of the foster care system. So here, here's the rundown. We have about 10 to 11,000 children in the foster care system. We think that's what we have. It's a little bit hard to get our arms around that because we have a fragmented system. Each of the six LMEMCOs manage their own set of children, meaning that if a child moves from one county to the next, their Medicaid doesn't necessarily follow them and they may not be able to get services. We have a huge money problem. 
We have increased rates for foster families in the state of North Carolina recently, but it's still not enough. A 2018 study said that our rates should be between $750 and $940. They're still sitting between $500 Some of these kids are sleeping on the floor in these offices, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And, uh, and, and that's because of all of these other challenges. So we have kids sleeping in DSS offices. We have kids sleeping in emergency rooms. And we have kids being sent hundreds of miles away from their families, being separated for as long as a year, maybe be more in some cases, uh, and uh, quite frankly, also going to other states. So it's a huge issue. The state is keenly aware of this issue and um, has started taking some steps. Okay. Uh, in the last uh, session, we uh, reformed child welfare, making it easier to place children with relatives and non-relatives, and also requiring a review and permanency planning within 90 days of that first disposition. The state is also um, committed to creating a statewide uh, uh, system for foster care youth and there are stakeholders engaged been engaged in that discussion for months and we should have a plan um, soon I'm gonna sound like a broken quickly, record uh, quickly yeah I'm gonna sound like a broken record Medicaid expansion would help it would give more families more services She's all message. Donna, go ahead. <laughs> yeah I think absolutely this is one of those issues that has you know crossed party lines Republicans and Democrats are working together on it uh, one of the things that we see is that because of sort of the frantic pace that when a child is removed from a home sometimes they can't get a judge to sign off, so somebody in the office or an official is signing off, which means that you're not, it's not getting the review process that is legally required. And, and, and one of, the, one of the, the downfalls of that is kids aren't taken and put with their families or family members. They're moving their, their psychiatric care, their medical care, their, you know, they're getting double immunized because they're moving to a different area. It really, really needs a, a you know, top-down revamp. Joe, we got about one minute. Give me 30 seconds, I'll go to Travis. Yeah, no, I think there's an aspect of this, too. I've served on the board of an organization in Wake County that helps young people emerging from foster care, and that's the other end of this issue. A lot of times these young people have gone through a terrible experience, foster parents being very well-intended. They may have been in four or five different foster homes, okay. but the needs that they have to become productive, self-reliant adults is also a serious concern. Travis, wrap this up. I read from the story that we've been talking about. North Carolina ranks last among the seven states in the southeast in per child investment in child welfare. I also want to shout out to the journalist who wrote that story, Kate Martin, Carolina Public Press. She's moving into a new role with NBC News. Look her up, find her, read her stuff. She picks good topics and those topics lead to change when she covers them. Okay, let's go to the most underreported story of the week, Donna. Yes. So uh, this was very underreported because I, I mean, I didn't hear about it uh, until this morning. So it is a remarkable reversal for the Biden administration. Very quietly on Wednesday, Thursday, they changed the requirements for getting that student loan forgiveness. So before, when it first started, you could get uh, forgiveness, you qualified for forgiveness, even if you were federally guaranteed loan was held by a private organization. Not anymore. As of the 29th, you can only get that forgiveness if it's held by the federal government. That cuts a lot of people out of it. You haven't heard much about it. They did it very quietly with some language on their website. And people may not find out about it till, I don't know, after the beginning of November. Well, yeah, but it's cost about, what, $400 billion, the CBO says, to uh Forgive uh, all yes, these and, and the majority are, you know, graduate degrees. Uh, you know, it's, you've got folks who didn't go to college feeling like they're paying for those who did. Might not be polling well. Joe? 
Yes, uh, uh, just recently all world leaders from around the world came to the United Nations. They have this big confab once a year. They all come and talk. And interestingly enough, the president of the General Assembly of the United Nations, Kassaba Guterres, said we are entering a new and much more dangerous epoch in the world. He made the point that uh, the war in Ukraine is just one of 30 armed conflicts currently going on around the world. And he said, quote, none of them are improving. Also, the U.N. food chief that handles issues of, of uh, famine around the world, David Beasley, said there are 50 million people in the world in 45 different countries that are, quote, knocking on famine's door. So a very dangerous and scary time on the planet right now. Sarah, underreported, please. This week, the Washington Post had an article, article about AI image creation, and DALI is the latest technology. AI image creation isn't new, but the technology has, has advanced significantly, and this new software allows people, anybody now, to produce any lifelike photo that they want, which might be cute if you're creating astronauts playing basketball in space uh, with cats, I don't know, but not so cute if you're creating images of rioters breaking down the, the gates of the White House. Uh, this is a relatively unregulated industry. Uh, we already know that you can find almost anything you want on the Internet, and now we have a new layer. Um, you know, a lot of these AI software companies are self-regulated, and in fact, one of Dolly's uh, rules to their users is to keep things G-rated. We already know from early reports that that's not happening. This is going to be a significant issue that we need to get our arms well, around. What did you see Elon Musk? Is, is just a little off topic here, but uh, or somewhat similar is uh, putting together and rolling out some uh, robots today, human robots. Great, what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> of course, I can think of a lot of bad things that start with the letter G. <laughs> Hearings wrapped up Thursday on Duke Energy's new carbon plan. This is a decades-long plan to shift away from burning coal to produce electricity in North Carolina and in South Carolina. The question is how much natural gas we move to versus solar or wind. Uh, the NC Utilities Commission will make this decision, set this plan into motion by the end of the year. Environmentalists feel like we're not going far enough. Uh, Duke Energy wants to rely more on natural gas than they're comfortable with. This is such an important issue, and the decisions uh, that are going to be made here are going to impact climate change for the rest of our lives and also uh, what people pay because there are different costs to the, these different so generation the decisions. Steps? The next step is the Utilities Commission by the end of this year, so by December 31st, makes a decision. Okay, let's go to the lightning round, Donna. Who's up and who's down this week? Oh, well, up, actually, it feeds right into what uh, Travis is talking about, environmental spending. Janet Yellen was in Durham this week at a renewables company talking about $375 billion that's going to be spent um, on climate policy. Uh, of course, at a time when, uh, you know, deficits are soaring, inflation is soaring, people can't, uh, f finding it hard to buy food and find affordable housing. All of those seems, things seem to be falling on deaf ears at the White House. Down, uh, stock market. Stocks have lost $7.6 trillion dollars since Biden took office. A lot of pensions IRAs there. Joe? Yeah, up a uh, risk from bio of biological warfare. The Council on Foreign Relations had a meeting recently where they said the technology and sophistication of many rogue states being able to produce a biological uh, a weapon of some sort has increased over the past decade and referred to this as a, quote, very dangerous situation for the world. Mm. Uh, what a sad show this has turned out to be. <laughs> uh, down, or perhaps urban modern architecture in Great Britain with a change in the monarchy. Prince Charles spoke very derisively of what he considered 
considered to be the obliteration of some historic properties in England with modern architecture. He once referred to the addition to the National Gallery in London as a, quote, monstrous carbuncle on the face of a much-loved and elegant friend. So perhaps King Charles will ban any modern architecture in Great Britain. Sarah, who's up and who's down this week? Uh, up are the number of charging stations needed to meet the state's goal for uh, electric vehicles expected to hit the streets. A report this week from the Sierra Club and Synapse Energy Econo Economics estimates that North Carolina will need 35,000 more charging stations in the next eight years uh, to support our electric vehicle goals. What's down is the Iranian government's incredibly poor handling of the uprising, led mostly by women in the aftermath of Masma Amini's death. How do you think uh, the uh, Biden administration has handled that so far? You know, I, I, I haven't think, seen much press on it, really. Well, um, oh, on, on, you know, I have not seen much press on it either. I, I, you know, I think that there are statements of solidarity, but there's more to come. Okay, my friend. Up is Sandy Smith. She's a Republican running for Congress in northeastern North Carolina. President, former President Donald Trump endorsed her when he visited Wilmington. A little bit surprising because the demographics of that district indicate she's probably not going to win that race. Also, she's been accused several times of domestic violence in the past. I would note uh, the NC Values Coalition released its endorsement list for congressional races uh, this week. She's one of the few Republicans you think not Trump's on it. Trump's endorsement's a double-edged sword. <laughs> Probably not for Smith, but for other candidates, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so is he a liability in a lot of these races? In some races, probably yeah. not in that one, but in some cases. Down, Bo Hines. Uh, in the 13th Congressional District, WRAL, in our weekend, store, uh, weekend show, on the record, we've got Bo Hines and Wiley Nickel, the Republican and Democrat, running in the 13th. They're going to be on the program Saturday night, but Hines wouldn't appear in the same segment as Nickel. He would not do like a forum or a debate, so we had to shoot separate segments. He's endorsed by Trump, too, as well, right? He is, indeed. Okay. Headline next week, Donna. Oh, you know what? We've got so much coming out. I think the big one, though, is going to be the North Carolina Supreme Court. It's going to be in Edenton talking about voter ID and North Carolina's district maps. How did that poll, by the way, in your poll? Oh, 61 percent were in favor of voter ID, which is actually higher than the original vote back in 2018. Headline next week, my friend. Yeah, Hurricane Ian brings rain and perhaps a little respite from the campaign season. Our thoughts and prayers go out Absolutely. to all those people in Florida. Headline next week. I'm going with my alma mater. Wolfpack goes 5-0, and ending Clemson's undefeated streak at home, moving the pack up to number eight in the rankings. You wouldn't I want to put so. a wager on that, would you? <laughs> uh, I, you know, we'll talk after the show. <laughs> Headline next week. Volunteers working in Florida. I know NC Baptist on mission, already en route uh, to help people affected by Hurricane Ian. Great job, panel. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row with Mark Rotterman is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Nicholas B. and Lucy Mayo Body Foundation, A.E. Finley Foundation, NC Realtors, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.